Hi, I'm Zora Chase, and you're listening to Small to Scaled, the podcast that explores how accomplished business leaders went from vision to venture. In these conversations, you'll hear about their experiences and take away some practical wisdom that might help your business scale to whatever size fits. In today's episode, we get to move into the world of nonprofit with Jamie Beck. Jamie is an attorney, and she's the founder of an organization called Free to Thrive. This is a place where attorneys work pro bono to help human trafficking survivors get access to legal help and clear criminal convictions related to their exploitation. So she founded the organization in the San Diego area, which is ranked one of the worst regions in the United States for human trafficking. Um, Thousands of victims um, in the San Diego every year and the business of human trafficking. uh, And and Jamie will correct me if my numbers are incorrect, but the research I found that that, uh, human traffic generates more than 810 million annually for San Diego's underground economy. Like it's second to the drug trade. I mean, just thinking about it like puts a pit in my stomach. Um, so I love that Jamie is out there doing something to help the victims of this. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and learning more about how Jamie got this foundation off the ground and how um, it's impacting victims of human trafficking. Thank you for being on the show today, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I'm sure everybody wants to know uh, what led you into this um, this business. I know you were in private law practice uh, before you started Free to Thrive. So maybe you can give us a little background on, on how you found this organization and what inspired you. Absolutely. So my journey to uh, starting Free to Thrive was in many ways continuing to say yes uh, when I saw a need and felt like there was something that I could do to help and very much tied to one survivor who I call Sarah, who really changed my life and put me on this path. And essentially what happened was I was working in private practice at um, one of San Diego's largest law firms and was a bleeding heart public interest lawyer at a law firm and wanted to do some good. And it started um, both doing pro bono work and also uh, working a lot with our feminist bar association, which was called Lawyers Club. And in that work came to uh, be mentoring a survivor through a mentorship program that we had started uh, through Lawyers Club. And then that survivor had some legal issues come up and I ended up taking her case pro bono. And that really was what put me on the path was working with her and seeing her, how incredible she is and how much opportunity she had. She was in her early 20s at this point and had just escaped from her trafficker and was trying to get her life started over and had all these legal barriers. And Mm -hmm. I helped her pro bono and continued to um, kind of stay in touch with her and and have her in my life over the years. And I realized at that time that there was such a huge need for legal services for survivors and that there wasn't an organization in San Diego devoted to that. And so I started getting more calls from other survivors as I started getting really involved in the anti-trafficking movement. And um, the more that I got involved, the more that I saw the need. So that's the the short version. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so Sarah was sort of your inspo, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what, what I'm hearing is that in the world of human trafficking, um, they're almost like victims twice, 
once when they are exploited by whoever, you know, I don't know people, what you call people that take human, I don't traffickers, <laughs> but then, then a second time by the legal system, because if they get out, they were probably undergoing, doing some illegal activities in that human trafficking role. So then they have to get out of that mess. That's, that's not cheap. exactly right. Yep. And that's exactly what happened to Sarah. She had um, been arrested for uh, theft. She was stealing for her basic needs because her trafficker didn't give her any of the money that she was earning um, and stealing for him. And she also had drug charges because she was caught with her traffickers drugs. And at, at the time she was doing drugs to cope with her own trauma and numb herself and be able to work long hours. And um, all of that came back to haunt her when she escaped and was ready to start her life over. She had this criminal record. And the first help that I gave her was helping her um, just resolve the open criminal cases with um, a criminal attorney at my law firm. And then after she had gotten through that, we're like, great, your case is over. You can go on with your life. And at this point, you know, when I met her, she was at a safe house um, and had then moved out, was going to college and looking for a job. And she couldn't get a job because of her criminal record. And I was like, I don't understand. We essentially what the legal help that we gave her helped her expunge her record. And what I didn't realize in California, and most people don't know, is that even if your record has been expunged, employers still see it when they run a background check and they don't know that it's been expunged. It says dismissed. And I, as a lawyer, had no idea that a dismissal meant expungement. doesn't say expungement on your record. And so she still couldn't get a job. And that's when I worked with Lawyers Club to actually pass a law in California that helps survivors clear their records that are related to their exploitation. And that I then took her case again and helped her clear her record. She's actually my first client. Um, using that new law. And then from there, it was just everything exploded because there, with that new law, there was such a huge need for more lawyers to do this mm -hmm. work that it was at that point that I ended up deciding to quit my job and start a nonprofit. Okay. So in the nonprofit, then you can build a greater footprint for the cause. And um, why don't you tell me about that? Like starting, like that's a big, bold move, leaving a steady gig, like a law firm. I know they pay pretty well <laughs> and starting a nonprofit, which um, is basically reliant on, on donations or, or grants and things like that. Um, how, what, what's the first thing that you do? And maybe someone listening here wants to start a causal organization um, such as this, like what, what, what advice would you give or what was the first thing you did to get it going? Sure. Well, just the same way that you would start a for-profit business. The first step is doing your homework and um, doing research. And I had a period about two years before I started the nonprofit that I consider my R and D period, where I was looking, learning about one, the space, the ecosystem in San Diego, making sure that there wasn't anybody already doing this and who already was in the space building relationships so that when I did come into the space in whatever form, you know, I decided to get into the space that I didn't step on any toes, um, but really had the support of the community. And then I looked at models around the country, who is doing this work and what does it look like and what's their model? And I wrote a business plan, same same as you would do for for-profit mm -hmm. and create my business plan. And the, the business plan really was the first draft of my early grant applications. That was the starting point of setting out what's the need, um, what's the problem I'm trying to solve for, what is what would I do to solve the problem if I start this business, 
And how, what are, what's the funding that I need? That's a business plan, right? The SWOT um, analysis, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, of course, at the, when I started, had no idea what a business plan is or how to write one and figured it out along the way with lots of help from lots of people supporting me. Um, and then over that period of time, I, I, there's a, there's a quote from the alchemist that really resonates with me. That is when you decide what you're meant to do in life, the universe conspires to make it happen. And so at this point in my life, the universe was conspiring. And a grant application came out. It was actually not even a grant. It was a county contract from the county of San Diego for pro bono legal services for human trafficking survivors. This is about two years into my R&D. And there's the exact funding that I need to start this program written for, wow. you know, exactly. And the reason is the need was there. There, mm-hmm. The community of San Diego had realized it wasn't just me saying, oh, wait, where are the legal services? Yeah. And so... But the reality is, is in the absence of anybody doing this, I was able to apply. I had already built the support from the community. I had letters of support from the survivor I worked with, from um, leaders in the San Diego community and the anti-trafficking community to support my application. And um, amazingly enough, was successful. And um, at that point, had with that funding, had about a year of funding to cover my salary and some of the costs of the work. I also got a grant from a private foundation that helped with a lot of the startup costs. We had, you know, filing for um, nonprofit um, status, the cost of getting insurance, and all the the costs that you need to get up and running. Was able to fund that through a, a single uh, grant, and then that was essentially what got us started. And then I had to figure out how to fundraise and how to keep it going, and also while all the while developing the program and launching the services at the same time and building a board and, you know, putting in governance, um, you know, all the things that you need for a nonprofit. That is really interesting. I went to one of your events. I thought it was fabulous. And what I saw there were a lot of leaders in the community of San Diego. Um, some, some pretty high up, some high up people here are supporting the organization. Um, You wrote them letters. How, How did you actually communicate with them? It had been the same thing of years. It, you know, it wasn't like I decided to apply for this grant and then re- reached out to all yeah. the leaders in the community. I had cultivated relationships with them over the years. Had, mm-hmm. you know, they had mentored me in in my path and had helped me create this thing. And so I had, you know, the city attorney and um, members of I can't even remember at that point who who else I know non another nonprofit leader is a survivor and these are all people that were invested in in not only me personally doing this work, but in the need for this service, they knew what the need was and, and wanted to see it happen. So I was very fortunate, but those relationships, um, you know, I've been really involved in the San Diego political community for a very long time and have volunteered on campaigns. I've, you know, know a lot of the elected officials in San Diego. And so that those relationships definitely came in handy over the years. Yeah, that would help. What about building a board? How do you build? I know building a high profile board is really important. How did you do that? It was a, definitely, it, it was the same thing. It was relationships. It was people that I had known over the years um, in different spaces. Some, some were newer, um, but most of them are people that I had known for a very long time and had some, I was looking for people who know more than me in areas where I know I'm not as strong. So nonprofit finance, for example, mm-hmm. nobody teaches you in law school how to do any sort of finance, certainly not nonprofit finance. And so I, I really want to make sure that I had a, somebody really strong on the board um, who knew nonprofit finance, um, management of a, you know running an organization, program development, experts in different areas of the law that I'm not an expert. I had a family law attorney, 
Um, I had a nonprofit, I had several nonprofit professionals, one who was a CEO of a, a very large nonprofit in San Diego at the time. And that was key, having somebody who was running a nonprofit helping me <laughs> learn yeah. how to run a nonprofit. Um, and then a lot of, you know, a lot of other, you know, prominent people in the community who really just were generous with their time and willing to help. Right. So smart, generous, um, experienced people are key. <laughs> And what about your team internally? Um, how did you start hiring? How did you get some help? Doing it alone is um, not fun and probably not feasible. I was very fortunate. I felt like the universe sent incredible people to me and to Free to Thrive to support our work. Um, the first few people that joined Free to Thrive staff began as volunteers. And early on, I said, you know, we don't have a whole lot of funding and I don't have any money to pay you, but help, help me build this organization. And, you know, we'll, we will figure this out. And the very first volunteer um, who's still on our staff today is an attorney who just like me was in private practice and really wanted to do something meaningful with her career. And um, she started as a volunteer and really built the organization with me. And I said, help me with grant writing and we'll help get funding to get you a job. And she did. And turns out she's an incredible grant writer and is still doing grant writing for free to thrive. Um, and so she's one person, another person that came along who is a paralegal and said, I'm a paralegal. I'm really passionate about human trafficking. I want to help. What can I do to help? And, um, she also is still with the organization. She was our first, um, staff member really, um, really focused on supporting our clients. So she's kind of, she's the first person who picks up the phone at Free to Thrive, but I don't want to use the word receptionist because that would not at all do her justice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really she's that the warm voice on the end of the line um, when a survivor first calls us and then kind of helping them navigate through the legal process. And then since then we've grown and now have 14 employees, which is insane. Jamie? Yep. Okay, you're back. Okay, okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if you were going to continue. All right. So, um, so I know that you are looking to scale your business. How are you going to do that? I mean, you're, yeah, I mean, how are you going to do that? So we started in San Diego, um, but there's been such a huge demand for our services that we are actually expanding geographically. Uh, we're, we are now serving different pockets of Southern California with a focus on Los Angeles, but we also provide services in Orange County and Riverside County. And um, LA is a really strategic priority because the need is just massive. I mean, LA is much, much larger than San Diego. And unfortunately, there's even more of a need for lawyers for trafficking survivors in LA. We got a lot of calls from LA and so decided to focus on expanding there. And in order to do that, the first is develop the programs and then raise the funding to, to do the work. And we've got the programs developed and now we're in the fundraising uh, stage of raising the funds we need to scale our staff and our services. Do you feel there's enough awareness about human trafficking out there for people to jump on board? Not at all. Um, <laughs> we have come a long way as a community, um, as a country, understanding human trafficking, but we, I mean, most of the conversations I have with community members about human trafficking are like 101, like really just demystifying basic, basic facts about human trafficking, helping people even understand what that even is. And until people understand what it is and who it happens to and how it impacts your community, they won't even have 
you know, the slightest clue about how to address the issue. Well, Jamie, you have the mic right now. Do you want to give us a quick <laughs> version of what it is? Like, what is human? Is that like someone is in in chains and and kept in a in a warehouse somewhere? <laughs> Tell us what is it really? Because I think it probably has more faces than we realize. It really does, and and you just you know really summarized what I think the mis the misconceptions are about human trafficking. Um, our clients are not in chains; they're not held captive. Human trafficking is exploiting somebody for purposes of sex or labor at the end of the day. And that can take many different forms. When we talk about sex trafficking, it can be prostitution, which I think is what people envision when they think of human trafficking. But it could be there's a lot of um, trafficking in the pornography industry. There's brothels. There's um, illicit massage. There's street prostitution, online prostitution. There's so many different forms of sexual exploitation that happen. Um, and then when we talk about labor trafficking, it's exploiting somebody for their labor. And it's, it's, it can involve extreme working conditions, um, but it could be in any industry. I mean, in California, some of the industries where it's really prevalent, um, any sort of kind of domestic workers, home workers, nannies, um, you see it in hotel and hospitality, construction, um, restaurants. I mean, it really, so many different industries may have exploitation. It's the kind of thing that I guarantee it is happening in your community, wherever you are, it's going to look different. Um, but it is happening all around us all the time. And you just may not know it. It may be your neighbor's nanny or housekeeper. It may be the cook at the restaurant or bakery where you love to go and get your food. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It just, it's not something that some nobody's going to say I'm a victim. Nobody's going to say, help me, I'm being trafficked. Most victims of trafficking have no idea that they're being trafficked. Um, you know, most victims of crime, you think of somebody who, you know, suffers an assault or somebody, something is, is stolen from them. They know that they're a victim. They know something has happened to them. This is like the one crime where people don't realize that they're a victim. So how are they finding you? How do you connect? Many ways. Um, so through different other, other nonprofits serving trafficking survivors, you know, many nonprofits provide housing or therapy or social services, and they connect them to us for legal services. That's a huge part of our partnership. We identify survivors in jail. So we have a jail-based program in San Diego and are expanding that to the Los Angeles County uh, Women's Jail as well. We get referrals from law enforcement, from public defenders and district attorneys, and all different you know, agencies and just individuals, people will call us and say, Hey, um, you know, I think my cousin, my nephew is being trafficked. Is there anything you can do to help? Mm, well, so it's amazing work that you're doing is how, how are you going to scale your business? I know that's what you want to do right now. Uh, move into other markets. Um, do you have a game plan for that? How do you market that? <laughs> It's a combination of building relationships with, you know, with donors and foundations and government officials in other areas, the same way that I built um, the programs in San Diego and doing a whole lot of grant writing right now, um, both for, you know, federal funds and state and local funds, just trying to raise, raise the money that we need to hire the staff to provide the services. Okay, great. So if anyone's listening here that wants to start a nonprofit, do you have any advice um, uh, that you might want to mention that we didn't cover today? 
I what would, would, what, would <laughs> what could you have not done without a grant? <laughs> surrounding a grant funding for sure. Funding. I think I, I think surrounding yourself with people who know more than you is so important. Um, you know, many most nonprofit founders are truly passionate about their cause, but maybe have no experience running a nonprofit or you know running a business at all. And understanding that there's so much more to a nonprofit than the mission itself. The mission is critical. That's what drives your work. But you have to understand governance and finance and employment laws and um, you know all these different aspects that any business owner needs to know. And so surrounding yourself, building your board and building a support network of people who know more than you. And then learning the art of fundraising, which I'm still learning myself. It's, um, you know, every day I'm learning new things still in this work. Uh, but those, I mean, having the funding to do the work is so critical. I know so many nonprofit founders who, you know, still are at a point in, in their work where they're doing it as a volunteer and have a, you know, a paid job that this is just kind of a side thing that they're doing their passion, but they haven't figured out how to monetize it to a point where they can quit their job and do their nonprofit full time. And that's a critical leap that is sometimes really hard to make. Yeah, I can imagine that is the number one thing. And you do need a full-time leader um, if it's really going to scale. Uh, And you were doing a phenomenal job, Jamie. So um, keep up the good work. Really appreciate you being on the show and sharing all your insights with us. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And everybody out there, thank you for listening to our podcast. This is part of a regular series that shares perspective of business leaders and entrepreneurs and nonprofit founders on how a vision can become a venture and a dream job. It was created out of my day job, Chasing Nectar Digital Solutions, where we create peace of mind with marketing solutions for high growth businesses. Visit ChasingNectar.com or DM me, please and keep your vision moving into your venture. Thank you.